Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, number one. <laughs> and I'm Solomon Giorgio. Do I say my name? Do I say Yes! I okay. Yes. Right. Hey, hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Solomon, welcome to Keep It. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. You know, this all-male episode. <laughs> oh, well, finally. Just a couple of men and their beliefs. I love it. <laughs> Look, I'm loosely holding to the term man. I'm not really it's like a dirty diaper in my hand, honestly. <laughs> Solomon is so somebody I'll be at a party and then, I don't know, like someone somewhere will mention, I don't know, Shaka Khan or Tina Turner or something. <laughs> and that, that turns into a 50-minute conversation between me and yes. Solomon. So I bet That's because we're both 60-year-olds uh, yes. in my heart. <laughs> yeah. Remembering our favorite Soul Train episodes, yes. It's like, oh, you know all this stuff we weren't born for? Don't you wish we were there? <laughs> Solomon is actually, I've discovered, a great vacation partner. I am. I, uh... Yeah. We went to Mexico City recently for Labor Day. And you know what it's like to travel with some of our friends. Uh, and some of them you yes. never want to travel with again. <laughs> um, but Solomon uh, is a wonderful person to travel with. I live by one rule. I'll get my own room. Uh, and I'll get out of the way when I need to get out of the way. <laughs> but I'm also down for everything. I'm always chaos adjacent, but not directly into chaos myself. <laughs> That's, you, it's important to witness chaos, I believe, oh, yes. as opposed to causing it necessarily. No. Yeah. Well, speaking of chaos, welcome to this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But we're starting the episode off on a somber note. Lewis, Norm MacDonald, died this week. I know. And, and I, I have to say, among straight comics, I think the type that's really 90s specific that I'm likeliest to be a real fan of are people whose whole thing is bastardliness. <laughs> so that really hit hard because he was like the king of exactly that thing of like, eh, here's the news and also... Fuck this. You know? <laughs> yes. And by the way, also maybe the funniest part of Billy Madison, a movie that I guess I'm ashamed to say I do think is very funny. It is a very funny movie. I'm not going to deny it. It's a funny it. movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. It's a classic. Uh... You don't have to deny Adam Sandler, Lewis. <laughs> okay. I mean, you could deny the Netflix era Adam Sandler. Right. Um, but pre-Netflix, uh, most of those movies are good. And it's also part of the venerated Bridget Wilson-Sampras trilogy, which is Billy Madison, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and Mortal Kombat. So. Oh, that's, that's, that's all she's done, has it been? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then married Pete Sampras, which I guess is, you know, a fine forequel. Yeah. All classics. If yeah. I'm going to end things, I'll end things at Mortal Kombat. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Norm, I actually really enjoyed as a weekend update host. You know, I feel like he was one that I think that people always sort of respected even later mm -hmm. after um, Weekend Update became um, 
a lot of different things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think he would definitely rank as, um, yeah, one of the best anchors that they had. I'm actually not sure who I would say my favorite ever is. I would say Jane Curtin's the most influential in mm -hmm. terms of, I think the most people after her did the kind of thing of like a salty remove from the news. Uh, you know, that reminds me of Amy Poehler a lot, a little bit mm -hmm. Seth Meyers. What I liked about Norm is he typifies a 90s kind of malaise, and yet I didn't feel he was ever copying anybody. It felt very specific yeah. to him. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously he wasn't as good as Colin Quinn. Oh, right. man. God, <laughs> that, that is so the era I really watched every week. I'm like, man, Colin Quinn doing it again with the – Also, Weekend Update is hard. You are flying a joke, and it may just fucking bomb. Like, oh, yeah. you know, it's not like being a talk show host where you, you have the monologue joke and then you can follow up immediately with other, like, smaller jokes if it doesn't work out. Like, they really are just, here's the news, laugh at this joke or I suck. And it's live. Yeah. <laughs> I think that Amy and Tina were sort of very good at that because, you know, a lot of their jokes, the setups were you could make fun of the joke if it did bomb. Yeah. Which... I think was a nice um, contrast to the Jimmy and Tina era where I don't know what Jimmy Fallon was doing <laughs> on Weekend Update from week to week. Uh, when a joke would bomb, he would just sort of be like, all right, I'm laughing, and then sort of move on. But I do think that that was kind of his best era for me. Well, I think for me, especially with Norm, is like he didn't care if he didn't think he was funny. Yes. He, if, you, mm -hmm. if you don't laugh... He, that's the only time I ever see Norm Macdonald laugh is when the audience doesn't laugh at his own jokes. At least you're humoring yourself, and I love that about him. Because like, and I laugh. I feel like I laughed at every one of his uh, weekend updates because the audience was not on board so often. Totally. Yeah. He like that was actually his comfort zone of like, oh, you didn't like this. Yeah. And whereas I think that Colin Jost and Michael Che also feel the same way, but it does not come across. <laughs> The they haven't laid the groundwork of like trustiness the way that Norm did, you know. Um, also, do you know what I just realized that I, I guess Colin Jost is like a year away from tying Seth Meyers for longest time doing it, which is really mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, I forget about the weird era where he hosted with Cecily Strong. Right, exactly. I like Cecily a lot, but for some reason, that year that they did Weekend Update, like never really gelled for me no i don't think so i don't think their personalities fit i don't think it's just not her signature thing at all yeah mm -hmm. yeah and weirdly i do think that colin and michael have a great chemistry and like sometimes they'll hit a weekend update out of the park yeah and that's the and that's the <laughs> last time i will compliment <laughs> either of them <laughs> It's also, Weekend Update is almost painful for me to reflect back on because I would say Dennis Miller is also one of the best ever. And now to put the words Dennis Miller and best in a sentence together is like, yeah. I, I feel like I'm impaling myself on something. It's such an, an awful feeling. I went to a live taping of his, uh, of his own show because that's how very into him I was. And now I have to exist in knowing that's never going to happen again. He's, he truly, <laughs> I, I hate it when people ruin themselves for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Super tough. And I think he was the first one. That was the first time I got to like, oh, their celebrities will uh, disappoint you. And Dennis Miller was the first one to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Who was the first celebrity to disappoint you, Lewis? Oh, God. Well, I mean, as I've said time and again on this podcast, there's no such thing at this point as being a Madonna fan without having 25 bones to pick with Madonna. So <laughs> I don't know that she would be the first who disappointed me, but, you know. <sighs> I've always been aware celebrities could let me down. I've never been surprised by that, I think. I was a wise child. Well, I guess okay. I was an idiot as a kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> as dummy, Solomon, right. <laughs> Learning the shit I knew from the start. I think mine was... Um, 
Amelia Earhart, you know? Oh, yeah. She was supposed <laughs> where, to be. Where you at, where you at girl? <laughs> <laughs> She's not showing up. Yeah. Oh. She was the first person besides Michaela Cole to say, disappear for a while. <laughs> Let people miss you. You know what? She might be coming back with a really good show. Here's <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, we have a very fun show this week. We've got Lil Nas X's album, Montero, to get into. We've got the Emmys, of course. And Lewis, speaking of Lewis being an old woman. Yep. <laughs> Lewis sits down with Haley Mills for a convo. Guys, can you believe I sat down and talked with Haley Mills? It's really shocking. But she is, well, first of all, wait till you hear her voice, which I bring up during the interview. You're melted already. You're the Orville Redenbacher butter. Get ready. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it's the parent trap is my grandmother's favorite. You know that my favorite is that darn cat. Both versions. I brought this up with her, and I feel like she maybe demurred from the question. It might not be her favorite, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That darn cat. She was like, don't bring up that fucking cat. (laughs) Maybe the cat was a bitch on set. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll be back with more Keep It. After an eternity of pole dancing to hell and back, getting sued by Nike, and fucking his way through prison, <laughs> Lil Nas X has finally given us Montero, uh, his debut album. It has taken a minute, but it's here. So what do we think of it? It's almost a perfect album to me. He's, it's like you can listen to the whole, whole way through and it tells a full story. And he's living his young, best gay black life. And I'm living vicariously through him. (laughs) I enjoy the album. I have to say, I'm a little bit more into him as a celebrity than as an artist. Like, for instance, he just, like, drops some photograph where he's, like, bearing ass, like, in a cheeky way. I didn't mean that with the figurative stupid word cheeky. Anyway, it was literally cheeky. (laughs) And, like, how, how often has, like, any celebrity male showed off their ass in a way that says... Oh, I'm an avail gay dude. I mean, it just like there is something about him specifically that's always up to no good in a fun way, mischievous. Well, you know, Colton Underwood is always up to no good. Oh God, I don't think it's fun though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, oh, you mean being bad? Okay. Um, but I will say I enjoy the album and most of his tracks, except. When other vocalists come onto the track, then I love them. Like when Megan appears, I'm like, ooh, you're amazing. When Miley Cyrus appears, I'm like, oh, there's a vocalist. So I feel like he could stand to actually be a little bit more commanding as a vocalist. Mm. I sort of get that. I really enjoy the album. Um, But I would agree that um, I tend to like Lil Nas X as a rapper Mm. and a celebrity. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're sort of in that era where rappers now all sing mm-hmm. whether or not they should uh, and you get you know varying degrees of success and i think you know i think he's fine as a singer it's also just sort of like it doesn't 
hit me, you know, the way that Industry Baby, you know, and like Scoop and Dollar Sign Slime, like those are great songs to me um, because it's giving you sort of that direct lineage of, you know, like black gay men who grew up on like female hip hop, you know, and now they're able to become their own sort of artists. You know, it's reminding me of when I used to listen to Lil' Kim as a kid and, you know, like you would rap along to it and now you have this happening here. And, you know, then I think about the fact that, you know, Lil' Kim wasn't busy trying to sing hooks. Mm. You know, I miss the era of grabbing, you know, like a female 90s R&B singer and letting them sing the hook for you, okay? But you know what Drake has done? <laughs> <laughs> Not just Drake, Ja Rule a little bit too, right. but even he would let, you know, like uh, a little Mo or Ashanti sing with him. I can't believe you just brought her up. I literally was just like, what is that name of that song with Ja Rule and Lil Mo? It's called I Cry. I couldn't re- I remember there was a video with like a funeral. Yeah. That's so when weird I cry, that you brought that up. You cry, we cry yeah. together. <laughs> but I think I'm just saying bring back some like R&B ladies and let them sing, okay? It could have been Ari Lennox, mm. okay? You know, we could have gotten you know, plenty of people to um, do some singing. See, I think there's just sort of like an inherent bias on my part because I just don't like the sound of male singers. Uh, right. <laughs> oh, is that what mm. I'm describing? Yes, that might be it. <laughs> <laughs> Men's singing is not that fun. Uh, but I think he still, he has enough charm to hold it up for me. So I don't, I don't mind it at all. I kind of relate to it, as a matter of fact. I like somebody who's like, you know what? I'm going to try my best at singing. And I like that. I, <laughs> and I, his melodies are so amazing, too. I think that helps yeah. out a lot. Call Me By Your Name is still, even after dominating the charts and I was hearing it constantly, and the day that I interviewed him for the cover of Entertainment Weekly and the song was on repeat all day. No other song played, literally. (laughs) Uh, Somehow I still love that song. (laughs) So I think the melody is uh, undeniable. And he's just sort of got this, like, great ability to write, like, really fun hooks the songs themselves are fun too you know like what's so interesting about having like a gay pop star a gay celebrity at this height of fame right now and like success is that the jokes and stuff that are in the videos that are in the songs are things that we haven't seen before mm-hmm. um from um someone with that sort of visibility yeah you know it's not to say that there haven't been black um, pop singers or, you know, rappers, but, you know, the one with this amount of visibility is um, uh. basically unheard of a few years ago. Oh, yes. Well, especially like a queer black person, especially that young, that, they're an overachiever. I know that for firsthand. Like, so he's he's always, <laughs> that's why I especially love him as just a uh, celebrity because you will, you will not catch him off guard, not even slightly, which is I can constantly enjoy. Each performance is giving you something that is interesting and it's giving you something that is like, going to have people talking and it is i mean bringing up madonna earlier lewis and then we do remember when you know she um was like i kissed a person of the same gender at the mtv vmas um she's somewhat obsessed with credit yes (laughs) (laughs) uh but aside from that it's giving that early madonna it's giving you know even that early you know like Britney's VMA performances where each year, you know, it was always like another like stellar performance and like people still remember those performances years later. I think that he has been delivering amazing live performances that we will still be talking about in a few years. And certainly kids who are growing up on them will be remembering them and be inspired by them. It's so exciting to think about younger artists right now or just even younger queer people being inspired by him the way we were inspired by 
artists when we were younger who weren't out of the closet. <laughs> right. No, also, something about him that really strikes me is, first of all, I feel like he's constantly vulnerable in his music, but then also there is always a streak of funny, too, which makes me, that just reminds me of all the gay guys I actually know. So it feels like you're watching a friend up there. Like, the joy he takes in really not just being provocative, my favorite word from Madonna's Behind the Music that people like Christina Aguilera have said a million times in interviews since, not just provocative, but like, really enjoying the Again, mischief. It's like that's what he likes causing. You know, there's just like a slight air of rambunctiousness about everything he does. Mm -hmm. I also really love how the album sort of spins genres. Half of the album isn't even a rap album. And it's like a pop album, but it's not, you know, the sort of like pop you would get from like a Nicki album or like a Drake album. There's really no starships yeah, right. on this. Uh, the, the pop songs are all giving you like Death Cab for Cutie. They're giving you um, Postal Service. It's, there's a lot of emo on this album. And that, I guess, goes to the vulnerability that he shows all the time. You know, um, I'm a big fan of Lost in the Citadel, which sounds, you know, a lot like one of those, like, early 2000s um, emo tracks that I would listen to in high school. It does. And I think that's one of the songs that I'm not that crazy about. <laughs> <laughs> Tales of Dominica is my favorite of the newer songs. Okay. Uh, I mean, it reminds me from when I interviewed him when he talked about how yeah. a lot of his influences in music that wasn't, like, rap, hip-hop, or pop yeah. came actually from film soundtracks. And then that reminded me that... When we were like in like high school and stuff, it was if you weren't listening to that kind of music specifically, you would always hear like rock or metal or that kind of music on soundtracks to like Batman yes. or like whatever big blockbuster uh, had just come out that summer. He also, by the way, you mentioned this, how fully formed his award show performances are. This reminds me of somebody else who is out the gate nailed every performance as in I, I don't understand how they're all so fully conceived doja cat like mm -hmm. yes every performance is like I, I don't know like for example like someone like madonna or even whitney or whatever they had pretty bare bones performances early on and then ramped up to the thing where it was you know the versailles version of mm -hmm. pop spectacle and just i don't know it's like pop is a little bit more tacked down to a science now or something like they really just know what they have to deliver and how, how provocative they must be for the performance to catch hold i feel like that live performance switch probably happened after uh beyonce's homecoming i think yes. that's what made every mm. other artist like oh you can do your song differently in a live performance you can do something not like the way you're supposed to do it and that's i feel like doja's like i don't want to be bored of my own song that bitch is tired to say so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, Dude. I sang it in 10 different genres. <laughs> We're doing the Zydeco version of Say So Now. Because I, I will always remember when uh, it was, when Andre 3000 was doing Hey Ya, and he's like, and for the millionth time, he does yes, Hey Ya. Yes, right. He's so pissed. And I'm like, I, I, I guess, I'm like, it's so good to see artists like, not want to be like, I don't want to be so mad at my own song that I just get mad on live TV. I mean, that, that legendary montage of uh, Little Mix having to perform Black Magic or whatever, and just the actual, like the life draining from their eyes as they sing this <laughs> ring around the rosy type chorus. Yeah. That is actually such a funny phenomenon to me. Like the idea of an artist whose like, song becomes so popular that they themselves are tired of singing it. <laughs> They're tired of performing it. They're like, thank you for continuing to buy this. 
I would really rather not sing it anymore. I think, honestly, that's why we ain't seen Adele. <laughs> <laughs> right. You think she wants to sing hello? No. Again? She probably doesn't want to even say the word anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't greeted anyone in seven years. <laughs> that's why we haven't seen her. She's avoiding. <laughs> and, of course, speaking of Doja, um, Doja is on the album, and I wanted to talk about the features for a minute. An Elton John feature on this album is iconic and i truly love that uh i think we've talked about this before i love that elton is just you know working with all of the younger artists right now that song he did with dua lipa so good yeah Mm -hmm. people seem to be inspiring him and he just seems to love music and working with younger artists i think when we had uh, rena sawayama on and she talked about how elton reached out to her uh and of course um instagram is telling us that um Elton and Charlie have been working together. Uh, Charlie Puth, my late husband. Right. <laughs> Who promised us that motherfucking album last year. And, yeah. where, and where is he now? He's dead. Yeah. He's dead. He, he's him. on Instagram still promising shit. Yeah, right. Yeah. He actually did an interview where he was like, I want to deliver a classic album, not a collection of singles. So I'm taking my time on the album. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know where I heard that before, Rihanna. Also, a classic al- album is a collection of singles. <laughs> that is what makes an album a classic. All the songs are singles. <laughs> All right. That is a good point that a lot of albums will sound like they're a bad collection of like yeah. singles and then a bunch of songs that are useless yeah. that are thrown onto the album. But an actual classic album, if you're talking like Thriller, Every single song on that album could be a chart-topping single. It's, they they so, were, though. That was, <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, seven of them. And Baby Be Mine could have been one, too. Lady in My Life, we will leave that one off, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a truly awful song. Also, and it's on Thriller. Like, you would expect that song on, like, Dangerous or something. That's why I prefer Bad. Oh, well, that's weird. There's some weird songs on that. Dirty Diana sucks. <laughs> oh, Wait. no, 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 no. Whoa! No, 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 Whoa! Lewis! Dirty Diana. No, no, no. Not a hook. That is anti-black. That's always on Moonwalker, and that is not... Oh, man. I actually just fully can't believe that you don't like Dirty Diana. The verses I can almost get into, but the chorus, it's so bad. It's just getting into that kind of hair metal sound of, like, everything Mm. smacks. It's just so 1987, 1988 in a way that I don't like. Like, if you're going to sound like that era, you better sound like Jody Watley. Don't sound like Motley Crue. You know what I'm saying? Uh, an older artist who impressed me by his response to another artist was Elvis Costello. Did you see somebody accused, I think, Olivia Rodrigo of lifting something from a song of his? He was like, that's the way music works. Mm-hmm. He like responded. He like was loving it. I was really impressed by him. Yeah, that happened with Lil Nas X, too. I think that um, when I saw Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings this past weekend, which also iconic film. Uh, and I think that people who are tired of seeing 6,000 Marvel characters and storylines that they have to figure out in a movie should go see Shang-Chi because it basically is just a modern kung fu movie. Oh. And you don't have to know Marvel history to watch it. Um, they sing Old Town Road in it. And in the credits, while I was sitting there um, waiting the five hours it takes to get a <laughs> Marvel post credit scene, I saw that I forgot that Trent Reznor and Atticus like are credited on Old Town Road. And that is because like part of I guess like the chord that's used in the sample is from the song Ghosts. And um there's like a Trent interview where it was like, um, yeah, I mean that's how music works. And it's also like 
cool. We're credited on that now because, you know, like that's executives doing stuff like that. That's why like Haley Williams is credited on um, Good For You Mm -hmm. by Olivia Rodrigo. But like real artists like that aren't out there trying to be like, okay, now you're going to pay me. I'm going to constantly acknowledge that like this song like stole something from me because that is how songs are made. You listen to music and then you're inspired by it. And then you sort of make your own thing. And yeah. there's there's no way at this point, you know, that like people aren't like we listen to so many songs mm-hmm. that sound like another song that we've heard years ago. And I just I appreciate artists like that and like Elvis Costello, like you said, who don't make yeah. a big deal about it. Unlike Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm just saying if you're gonna lift anything from anyone, make sure everyone in their family is in the state is dead. <laughs> it's just right. Really- that is true. That is true. It helps if they're alive and sane. Uh-huh. Uh and they're like, okay, I don't really mind this. If you did it to do not sample anything from Aaliyah because her uncle will come for you. Right. Oh, God. The relatives of Marvin Gaye, they are alert. Yeah. They are aware. They are, aware. they are listening to every chord progression. They destroyed Robin Thicke's career. Right. He helped. If anybody needs to be sexually healed, it's that family. <laughs> That's fair. He did not need help. I guess he did terrorize Paula yes. Patton. <laughs> right. But then Paula Patton terrorized us with that performance in Precious. Girl, bad job. Sorry. What <laughs> was the last thing she was in? World of Warcraft movie? I... Oh, right. Which is ch- like China's favorite film or something. Yes, it was. I wrote for an award show uh, <laughs> that she hosted, and she, they all loved her. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I, I wrote for a random Chinese award show in America that was not televised, and she was one of the presenters. Wow. <laughs> okay. And I watched Rob Schneider bomb uh, in both English and then five seconds later in Chinese. <laughs> You know, I want to say that I really enjoyed her in uh, that Denzel movie that she was in, but I can't remember what it was. Deja vu. Deja vu. (laughs) Deja vu. I was thinking it was out of time, but that is Ava Mendez. And that is a great movie. And that also reminds me that I would like Ryan Gosling to let Eva Mendez out the house so she can make another movie. <laughs> you think he's barricading the door. Okay. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Stop, stop raising your kids, girl. Get a nanny. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. I miss Eva Mendez's little, you know, like, sultry era and whenever they would cast her opposite um, black action stars because they didn't want to cast a white woman or a black woman. Yeah. She had a special niche in Hollywood, <laughs> and I think we're missing some Eva Mendez. I was gonna say, I think she's still her signature movie is still Hitch, right? She's this w- celebrity who has this like continued relevance. Like I feel like her name is constantly brought up, but it's still all about her being in Hitch. The people who continue to bring up Hitch are chaotic. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that damn good. All right, like Hitch Hive confuses me. <laughs> she was on the second Fast and the Furious, right? Yeah, Too Fast, Too Furious. Wow, I'm not. Yeah, I've seen her in so long. Let her have a relaxing life. <laughs> Let her enjoy that gosling money. I don't want it. <laughs> I hope she doesn't even have a prenup. <laughs> I hope whatever they have is preventing him from directing. That's what concerns me. It didn't stop him from singing, though. So that right. helps. <laughs> mm, damn. Yes. Almost there. Yeah. Oh, right. Yes. He directed Lost River in 2014, but um, has not directed anything since. Oof. So. Wow. Thank you. Eva. Right. <laughs> All right. Okay, fine. You know what? Eva Mendez is doing the Lord's work. Okay, she gave up her career to stop Ryan Gosling from directing. And there you have it. <laughs> we'll be right back. 
Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Uh, so our guest today is an icon and one of the few people I've ever mentioned to my mother, which immediately made her perk up in her chair and recall 50 things about her own childhood. Man, that must be so daunting to inspire people this way. But anyway, the star of Pollyanna, the parent trap. Good morning, Miss Bliss, if you're familiar with the precursor to Saved by the Bell. And one of the best speaking voices, just period. It's Haley Mills. Haley Mills, welcome to Keep It. How are you today? Well, I'm very well. Thank you very much, Louis. What a lovely introduction. And I want to say hello to your mother and also <laughs> your grandmother, because that's very often what people say. Oh, sure. I bet. I bet. Now, okay, you have this wonderful new memoir called Forever Young. And I'm always blown away when people write a memoir that is so focused on their childhood or adolescence, because as somebody with a pretty awesome memory. If you made me try to come up with what happened to me from the ages of whatever, eight to 17, I would be drawing a blank. Was it very daunting for you or because you're so burned into iconography, it's actually very easy for you to remember everything? Well, I think I can, because I'm so old, I can, the further back I go, the more I remember. Please don't ask me what I did yesterday and what I had for breakfast because I wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, but, I also kept a journal, not every day, but I kept a journal, which was tremendously helpful. And I would write all my moanings and groanings, mostly my unrequited love affairs. Uh, but, you know, they take you into who you were. They take you into your mind and into your problems, your problems. And I loved going back there. I really I loved inhabiting that time again. It was a wonderful experience when I wasn't banging my head against a wall. Because it's the agony and the ecstasy of writing, isn't it? Of trying to get it right and not most of the time. When you're looking back at these journals, did anything surprise you about them? I, I'm picturing what I would have journaled about at that age. 
And I think I would be like horrified to realize whatever I was spending most of my time thinking about or whatever. Oh, absolutely. I was horrified. I wasn't really talking about the work process, you know, my, you know Stanislavski and the method and all that. Now I was talking about whether I was going to kiss the clapper boy. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense. But yeah. what's interesting, though, is you're somebody who I read in the memoir that you just were always playing a character growing up, that you were always sort of playing make-believe, et cetera. But did you ever feel that you had to learn acting? I, your father is also an acting legend. Is it just something that was ingrained into you? Or do you, do you did you feel you really had to properly learn at some point? Not in the beginning. In the beginning, it was like falling off a log. It was an extension of all my imaginary games that we all play as children, you know, that go on all day. When you're having a bath at night, you're still playing this character and nobody even knows. It was when I got older, I began to question what I was doing. And I began to work with different kind of actors. And it was because I was older. I, I was always surrounded by wonderful actors when I made all those Disney films. Fantastic. Disney cast them up magnificently. And I learned a tremendous amount from them. Wonderful screen actors like Maureen O'Hara and Brian Keith and Adolf Marju and George Sand, the people that really knew the craft. So I learned a tremendous amount by osmosis. But by the time I got into my adolescence, I felt that I was repeating myself because I wasn't a child anymore. I was turning into some other creature and I didn't know what that was, that horrible, fearful time we go through in adolescence before we sorted ourselves out. And that's when I began to question what I was doing and doubt what I was doing and seriously doubt what I was doing and thought that everybody else was thinking I was a pile of that word we don't mention on polite <laughs> programs. And um, so the answer really eventually for me was I did want to go back to school. I didn't go to a drama school. There are lots of I wishes and regrets, like I wish I'd gone to the actor's studio. I could have done that. But I think I was a bit nervous, a bit terrified, to be perfectly honest. I did want to learn. I wanted to know what it was I was doing. So I went onto the stage. That's when I went into the theater. You mentioned working with great actors. And I just want to underscore that that is not an understatement at all. I mean, some of my fit, Deborah Carr, I just watched you in the Chalk Garden the other day with the wonderful, not just your father, but Dame Edith Evans, one of the great actors of all time. Yes. Jane Wyman, just, they go back and back and back. Did you actually relate to any of these people or were they just sort of like distant, accomplished grownups? It's like, did you see yourself in any of these legends you worked with? Oh, that's such a good question. Obviously, because I was a child, there was an enormous amount of looking up to people uh, and being somewhat in awe of them. It depended on the person and, of course, it depended on the part they were playing. So I was rather in awe of Jane Wyman. Not that she wasn't very warm and very sweet to me, but she was playing my Aunt Polly. I found it difficult to bridge that. Carl Malden, on the other hand, you know, I flung my arms around his neck regularly. He was a lovely, warm, terrifying man. <laughs> you know, he was a fascinating actor to work with, fascinating to watch. Maureen O'Hara, initially I was very much in awe of her because she was so beautiful, but she was also 100% real, warm, funny, lovely, and never stopped talking. Very Irish. 
you know, and when we were working together, she was always talking and, oh, darling, and telling me this and telling me these stories. And, oh, come here. And you've got to do this and you've got to do it. Do you remember? You know, I forgot that she was this mega star. And I just thought she was one of those beautiful, lovely people I'd ever met. So they were all big influences on me. Yeah, of course. And the men as well, you know, the men that I worked with, like Alan Bates in the British movie Whistle Down the Wind. I adored him. And my first love was wonderful German actor Horst Buchholst in the first movie I ever made. And, you know, that was a very significant well, your first love is very significant, isn't it? <laughs> you mentioned valuing how down to earth some of these actors were. And it seems like your parents, specifically your dad, really made an effort to keep you down to earth. And the most famous anecdote, I think, worth mentioning here is that they didn't take you when you won the last Juvenile Academy Award for Pollyanna. It just showed up at your door after you went back to school or something. Right. Can you explain why they made that decision? Lewis, I think there's a lot of reasons one of them was I was at school. The other one was my father was working. The other one was that in 1960, whatever year it was, to get from London to Los Angeles was a very, very long journey and you had to stop a few times. So it meant my mother would have had to take me and it was just like, it was all too much. And <laughs> maybe the other reason too was that this was such a huge honour. There was definitely a sense of, I think we've got to cool this because we don't want her to get carried away. And there was also this sense of nobody really knew how long this acting thing that I was doing was going to go on. I might go through adolescence and fall in love with a doctor and disappear to Suffolk and have six children and drink soup all day, you know, and never... <laughs> you know, and never want to act again. I'm picturing it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not the worst life. <laughs> Specifically, I want to talk about something that is just mind boggling when I read it in the book, but then I realized you obviously had a friendship with Walt Disney. And I realized people don't know now that Walt Disney once upon a time was as familiar a personality as he was a celebrity. Like you would see Walt Disney, you had an understanding of who he was just uh, as a figure. What was it like knowing this man? I imagine even as a young person, just being like, how is it possible? I know like the king of the idea of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, that's really well put. Maybe I lacked imagination, but he was a very real and down to earth person. And I took it for granted to a certain extent because I met the person, I met the man and I really, really liked him. And then I met the man who owned the studio. And then I met the man who created Disneyland. And who he was began to grow in my mind and my, my imagination. My father, when I was born, had been a big star for years. So I was born into a household where my dad was a big star. So I, I was familiar with that concept. And I met a lot of people who were big stars. But they were people first and big stars second. But they were also marvellous people, entertaining and charismatic people. So I was familiar with the idea of extraordinary people. And of course, the other thing is that he wore his genius and his fame very lightly. He was sweet and gentle and a little bit shy, actually. And he had a very sweet 
shy laugh. And it was a pleasure to say something inadvertently and make him laugh. Of course, this is why he liked my parents so much because they were amusing and very good companions. And, you know, I was a child tagging along. Walt loved my mum and dad. And I always knew, I was always aware that so much of my luck was through them. They walked ahead and, the, you know, the Red Sea parted and I just followed behind. I was very, very lucky to, to be in that position and I was well aware of it. And I was very, very lucky to know Walt Disney and love him as a man. Are there other sort of, I'll say, icons who are Hollywood royalty descended from other acting celebrities that you in particular relate to? Like, because uh, Jane Fonda would have been coming up right around the time you were uh, becoming a star, for example. Were there other people like that you became friends with or understood? I never met her, and I, I'm a huge fan of hers. Huge fan. I was also a big fan of Patty Duke. Of course, yes. I thought she was wonderful. We were the same age, and I saw her in New York in The Miracle Worker. And I met her afterwards backstage and I was deeply impressed that she was on that stage in that huge theater and being so brilliant. You know, and then the people in the Mickey Mouse Club, like Annette Pudicello, who was a little bit older than me, I really liked her and I was quite sort of impressed by her. And I met Michael Douglas at a party, but the relationship didn't go anywhere. (laughs) Damn it. Oh, that would have been a good one, I think. (laughs) It's doing fine with Catherine, I guess. Yes. Also, something that people might not know about you is that you were married at 20 to someone who was 30 years older than you. And uh, this is also, I think, around the time your father won the Academy Award for the Best Supporting Actor, if I'm not mistaken, or a little bit before, a little bit before. But what was that chapter of your life like? Moving into adulthood, was that one of the stranger parts of your life? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think you could say that. It's like, wow, I'm grown up, I'm spreading my wings. And I was actually spreading my wings for about six months, fell in love with Roy Bolting, and boom, my wings were clipped. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Almost had it. (laughs) You know, he was an amazing man. He was a wonderful man. He was a brilliant director. And although he was a lot older, 32 years to be precise, uh, he didn't look it and he didn't seem like it. He was very young spiritually. At the time, I was always asked if he was kind of father substitute and I'd bristle and say, I've got a perfectly good father of my own. Thank you very much. I don't need another one. Uh, But I think that, you know, looking back, there was subconsciously, absolutely subconsciously, a feeling of the world is actually quite a scary place. The responsibility of being in it and making the right decisions and not making all the wrong decisions, I was aware of. And although I wanted to be independent, when I fell in love with Roy, it was a kind of like a relief because here was somebody who was going to look after me. And it wasn't because he was a wonderful director and he was going to put me in all sorts of wonderful films because as so often happens, that relationship can often get in the way of work. It's much better for it to be, you know, detached emotionally. Now, if you were to watch one of your old films right now, like I made you do it, what would be the one you'd be likeliest to choose? My co-host Ira insists 
that that darn cat is top tier Haley Mills. I don't know if you agree with that. Well, it's a very amusing film. I enjoy that. It's very funny. The only thing is that because I, you know, my vanity is still a problem. I don't like looking at myself on the screen when I'm really fat. And I was really fat in that film. So (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't, whatever I did, my face was like a balloon. I do have a soft spot for the first two films. Yes. Pollyanna and The Parent Trap. For me, they were the best two films I made for Disney. And that's largely because of David Swift, who wrote the script for both films and directed both films. And he had such a sure touch, a great sense of humour. He was a very good writer. And with Pollyanna in particular, he navigated through the sticky marshes of sentimentality so cleverly. He said, oh, he was so worried, you know, she's so perfect that she would make everybody puke in their seats. And (laughs) I don't think that people did puke in their seats. Uh, At least I hope not because of the film. So those two, I think. I think they do stand up, whereas I'm not quite so sure about some of the others. I want to say the Chalk Garden is very good. I really enjoy it. Did you? Yes. uh, Again, and Damien Evans, too, which is an actor people just need to know, period. Look up Importance of Being Earnest, uh, The Whisperers, plenty of great Edith Evans stuff out there. Uh, But anyway, Haley Mills, wonderful book. And thank you for being with us today. I so appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Lewis. I've really enjoyed this. Time has flashed by. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hollywood's second biggest night was Sunday, and it was a huge night for people who play dress-up as British royals or (laughs) British soccer players. Mm -hmm. As it should be or something? Okay. (laughs) Girl, all I know is if I were at the goddamn Emmys and I had to sit there watching everybody from the crown win on Zoom, not even in the room, I'd be mad. (laughs) Their little soiree looked pretty fun, though. I was liking whatever that venue was. Did it look fun? You know, I think people just like sitting politely over there, and that's exactly (laughs) what they did. With Chicago-born Gillian Anderson, who then moved over there. What an interesting little story of hers. Look, I, yeah. she's, she's had a great transition into being an amazing British actress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no one has ever pulled it off like she has. She's truly, she belongs to them, and I understand. <laughs> <laughs> this show, the Emmys is always an ordeal, and you know who did not help? I'm sorry. Cedric the Entertainer. I thought the opening, <laughs> save Rita Wilson's rapping, had some moments of funny in it. But unfortunately, 
they flew through so much of the ceremony that when you ran into a sketch, a pre-taped sketch, it really felt like an interruption. I don't know. There was something about the pacing where it's like when we got to his comedy, I'm like, oh, but we don't need this anymore. We're flying through this. Mm-hmm. There's all these older entertainers, especially when it comes to hosting award shows that are so afraid of doing things that you're just like, you're, you're literally taking no risks. And so mm. it has zero fun at all. Yeah, every sort of joke that Cedric said was expected. And, you know, I don't want to drag the fine people who were working on this show. But if you're making jokes about, like, Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and which one, like, is the better vaccine to get, um, pack up your bags. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that was six months ago. Like, you could, that's... People think that there's a longer shelf life for topical material than it should be, and it's no, it's not. You have to, like, you had you do that in that month, or it's done. Totally, yeah, I think that does make sense. This ceremony in particular was about two things for me. One, Michaela Cole's speech, who mm. first of all kept it super succinct, and then secondly was like visibility does not equal greatness. Okay, I'm actually going to remember that. What an interesting novel thing to say during a ceremony. I do want to say about that, though, and her amazing speech, which I will repeat, is write the tale that scares you, that makes you feel uncertain, that isn't comfortable. I dare you. Visibility these days seems to somehow equate to success. Do not be afraid to disappear from it, from us for a while, and see what comes to you in the silence. I want to point out that most people sharing that quote on Instagram are the people who I wish would get the fuck off Instagram. <laughs> it's like, Please listen to her. Sit disappear in the silence. from it. Yeah. Disappear from it. Like it's, they, became, they became so present the second she, they said, like, they're sharing it, they're taking photos, and like, I'm absorbing this information, but I'm doing none of the things that are required to do it. Taking a picture of themselves crying at the quote and then posting it. Uh, I just have to point that out because I feel like the majority of the people sharing it will absolutely not go away. Mm -hmm. That's Okay, good point. And then the second thing I was obsessed with was Hannah Waddingham. What a true freak. Oh, my God. When she went up there... Talking about the normal people. Yes, she, she was thinking... First of all, it looked like a million bucks. You know, just in the mold of like a Robin Wright or an Annie Lennox. Just mm. that kind of regal, short, sharp hair thing. And then absolutely flipping the fuck up. There's a lot of screaming during award show speeches this year at the <laughs> yeah. Emmys. And when she screamed, I'm giving a speech at the Emmys in a full shriek. I mean, it was so funny. And then I, I, I love that the end when she's like, give West End musical actors a chance because they won't let you down. I believe that. That struck me as an earned sentiment. I fucking love her. She is fucking uh, awesome. I love her, and I'm happy for Brett Goldstein as well, although I am now concerned for next year's Emmys because, um, as we know, Emmy voters are lazy, uh, and they will continue to vote for the same show every year, whether or not the quality has dipped, and season two of Ted Lasso is not the move. Mm-hmm. It is not the <laughs> moment. It is not that girl. Uh, it is people being pleasant to each other and walking around conflict-free. And I would like Emmy voters to recognize that next year and not just continue to reward Ted Lasso, but I know that they will. So I'm saying this in vain, basically. Uh, But this is also like The Crown, which actually was good and does deserve awards, but give West End British actors a chance. I would like them to have a chance at the Olivier's, <laughs> at the BAFTA's. Wow. Xenophobe Ira Madison. I'm about to get xenophobic, okay? I've had enough. 
<laughs> I've had enough. This is our show, okay? <laughs> this is our show, and I've had it. Look, we've gone through so many British waves as a culture, so I feel like they've gotten enough awards. <laughs> oh, Come sure. on. Yeah, right. Except for Michaela Cole. I would have gladly lauded her with uh, many more awards, and I'm actually a little upset that she only got one award. Yeah. Mind you, I will say the other categories in which she was competing pretty stacked which by the way was not mo- most categories were not stacked yeah. at this year's Emmys I felt pretty stacked but if it were Phoebe Waller-Bridge she would have won interesting um like for instance something I noticed about this year's Emmys and I'm not somebody who was good at this or prides myself on being good at this I predicted every single win mm. not that the Emmys are likely to throw curveballs because it's about a continuous performance over a season you're not likely to have polarizing nominees which you always get at the Oscars you know somebody who's like Kate Blanchett in The Aviator, for example, a performance I don't like, but then probably won by a landslide, for example. There's something about the Emmys that is awarding consistency, and because of that, the winners are less likely to be surprising. So the Mm -hmm. award rollout is always like, I feel like the right people win, but you always can predict it in a way. Yeah. I feel like the twist with the Emmys is always just nominations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you never expect a surprise upset in the wins, but you do get a surprise nomination in, like, MJ Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. Did not expect her to win, though. Because you're going up against, you know, what most people have decided they're going to vote for, like, from, you know, the jump. Psyched for Brett Goldstein, though. It's a very um, kind of Jeremy Piven and Entourage win, like the, you know, dickish prick we all love except we like brett goldstein oh yeah oh yeah this had nothing to do with them as people yes (laughs) (laughs) we do not think that brett goldstein will drop out of a play because of mercury poisoning for instance (laughs) right right and also i'm gonna i'm gonna say that hacks did sweep uh yes yes I do want to say, if you give me a small guest starring role of 10 seconds in a bathroom, <laughs> you're most likely going to sweep the Emmys. <laughs> uh, where are the shrill Emmys? Um, you know what? We, we, we got 80 uh, nominated, and that was the uh, only thing we've gotten so far. There's no more seasons, so I can't. That is the, <laughs> that is the end for the shrill Emmy season. And honestly, I also understand the lazy Emmy voter, because I've been... Uh, I've, Two years ago, I was given the option to join, and uh, every year since, and I still haven't signed up because it requires paperwork. <laughs> oh, no, I feel the same way. No, it's like, oh, yeah, I could be a part of this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but I hate I mail. Yeah, I right. Know. I haven't either. I don't even like mail from the WGA. I barely want to vote in regular elections. See? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, shout out to Hacks and shout out to Paul, Lucia, and Jen, um, who I adore. And that was nice mm-hmm. seeing um, the three of them up there getting yes. an award. And then Lucia went in again. Yes. That is the kind of feel-good stuff I like to see at the Emmys. Friends of mine getting awards. <laughs> no, way. Speak, speaking of Gene Smart, who was, of course, on Mayor of Easttown, how did you feel about Kate Winslet beating... Anya Taylor-Joy and Michaela. I know you've voiced some disappointment over Michaela, but I think Kate did deserve it because that is sincerely just a genre TV show. It is just a run-of-the-mill detective series, and every part of her performance made you believe you were watching something extraordinary. Yeah, well, for me, I think like Anya is like, what, 10 years old? Yes. So I- <laughs> <laughs> and Law Roach does often have her dressing like a Barbie doll. Mm-hmm. A lot of pinks. Yes. But she looks amazing, but that's for me, is like I feel like 
It's like she's she's just getting into the awards, so I'm not too concerned about her winning. Yes, I think we have faith that she will have like at least a dozen more award-worthy performances ahead of her. Yeah, and being in the New Mutants um, sort of cancels out you getting to get any awards for this season. <laughs> so right. unfortunately, rules are rules. Uh, that's just what happened. I would have picked Michaela over Kate. I get that she elevated a genre and she did a really amazing performance, but the depths that I feel like Michaela Cole went to to portray the story that she told, a story that was her own story, writing and starring, are hard to do. And I really feel like she was emotionally vulnerable and honest in every single fucking scene, every frame that she was in. Uh, and wh- I was moved by Kate Winslet immensely, but... I don't know. Michaela made me cry yeah. while watching her on television. Um, and for me, I would have voted for her. I would have voted for Michaela, but I feel I would also, I think Kate Winslet has name recognition. And that's also, of course, mm-hmm. she did a great performance and she's the more popular name. And it, that's kind of how it has to, that's usually how the cards lay. That's how they always lay at the Emmys. Yeah. I feel like Michaela could have won an upset if it were the Oscars. Yes. Gained a little bit more heat. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's sort of hard to get heat in the Emmys. You know, people just decide sort of what show they liked, and then you move on with it. And there's so many episodes of a show to watch, too. You know, if, if you're just watching four movies, it's much easier. And I feel like it's easier to campaign yeah. with a movie during Oscar season than it is to campaign with a show, you know? Because, like we said, with Emmy voters, you either watched it or you didn't. Exactly. Um, do you know who I was happy about, speaking of Mayor of Easttown, is both Evan Peters and Julianne Nicholson getting awards because... They're the kind of people you're always seeing, mm-hmm. and they're always like ninth build, mm-hmm. and they're like designed to be more forgettable than like the major stars and whatever they're doing. So you're kind of like, will they ever get the breakout moment? Like Julian Nicholson was so good in um, Battle of the Sexes, that movie with Emma Stone as Billie Jean King. Evan Peters mm-hmm. obviously is like lives in the ball pit at Ryan Murphy's house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am so happy that Evan Peters won for a, a non Ryan Murphy show. <laughs> and I hope it inspires him. Girl, I hope and you his get team, out. Okay, <laughs> escape. Girl, I hope you find a new place. You are trapped. Oh. When he popped up in that first season of Pose playing that role, I was like, baby. It's time for you to go. Get her out of here. She doesn't need to be there. Y'all just wedging it in his storyline. Let him. Let him Wait, it's been a while since I've seen that. He's the one that India Moore yeah. is dating, right? Yeah. Yes. And, remember, and, remember he and Kate Mara were just hanging out in the first season of Pose? Right. Mm-hmm. Just the cultural shift between those two seasons and how not having that white family there. <laughs> And no James Vanderbeek either. <laughs> like, right. like, well, first of all, like, why were they in like this Mad Men esque world in an eighties black? Yeah, uh, right. Interesting. It's like, what's going on? Like, what are, what are we mashing together here that we don't need to have together? <laughs> and also, it was like he was there so that they could. Didn't he live in like Trump Tower or something? It was like very yeah. important for them to name drop Trump at the time. Anyway, we're out of that era, luckily. But but they did replace white people with ghosts on the second season, so I don't know. <laughs> 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 and then <laughs> and then they just had Patty LuPone yes. singing to AIDS patients because why not <laughs> I love that show so much that was so chaotic <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing a Ryan Murphy show is going to give you it is chaos <laughs> so 
Thank you. Um, <laughs> Throwing the script and usually a witch out of a window on these damn shows. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little pressed about um, WandaVision not getting what it deserved. Okay, guys, did Catherine Hahn really deserve an Emmy for that? <laughs> you like the plot twist, and obviously she's I don't a wonderful mean actress. Catherine Hahn. I'm in a long stand. Like, it was not Agatha at all at any point. She did not do anything wrong. She slightly influenced a storyline. But the bad person, <laughs> the bad, the person that ruined the town's life is the Scarlet Witch. I, frankly, yes, I yes. truly hate that part of that storyline where it's like, this is a big twist. Like, it is not a twist. That is not true at all. It's a linear story. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually rooting for Paul Bettany. I thought he was great. Paul Bettany, beautiful man. Yeah, beautiful man. And, um, you know, I once wrote something rude about him defending Johnny Depp, and uh, I think that he and I have come to a good place now. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I've I've had a crush on him since uh, the Heath Ledger uh, weird film uh, where he was a knight. <laughs> a knight's tale? Yes. Let me tell you something about a knight's tale, <laughs> Solomon. <laughs> it is not good. <laughs> oh, I've actually never seen it. I loved it when it came out in theaters. Like, a knight's tale was like my identity. When it hit Netflix during the pandemic, I watched that movie again, and I, I turned it off 30 minutes into it. It's like a really bad attempt of like an arts version of <laughs> medieval story, but it's mm. like they still had sort of like the loose hair. And, and modern music, like yeah. they say, we will rock you a bunch. It's, <laughs> it's doing a lot. It's not and a good movie. Don't think that um, we would have allowed it to exist if we known that um, we would have lost Heath Ledger a few years later. That's right. Oh, you think it led directly to that? Okay. Feels sort of disrespectful. Yeah. But Paul Bettany was actually doing. He was on the movie. Did the police ask a Knight's Tale its whereabouts? <laughs> I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul Bettany did a great job in the movie by being just as hot as Heath Ledger, which is says a lot. And naked most of the movie too. He opens up the movie naked. He was also, of course, great in what was your dad's favorite movie for probably eight years afterwards, Master and Commander, oh. mm. which has no legacy otherwise. It's in, like in the Bridge of Spies category of movies, which is like, oh, that gets dad out of his easy chair and into the theater. Is that That's one on the boat, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Boat film. I don't watch boat movies. <laughs> no. I just, no. If it's not overboard, I don't pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know what my dad's favorite movie is. Well, right. I don't know my father. That's right, yes. I understood where this was going, yes. And my father's favorite movie is Footloose, so. <laughs> oh, is that so? Original recipe, I'm sure. Yes. That's yeah. a good damn movie. Footloose. We need more movies like that. Anyway. <laughs> Underrated Miles Teller performance. I know we've discussed that in the remake. Oh, are we talking about the remake? Oh, yeah. I forgot, but there was a remake. The first one is a very good movie, and the remake is actually a very good movie, too. It has its moments. Because this is a pro-Miles Teller podcast. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> is it pro-anybody you think is attractive? <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> but it's not a pro-Colin Joe's podcast, and we all know that I do find that man attractive. Oh, I, I, I somehow forgot that, or Eternal Sunshine that, so. Uh, here we are. We'll both get an appointment afterwards. <laughs> if I could Freaky Friday's Colin Joe hand in for a day. <laughs> Good lord. Cut the mics. I would. <laughs> I would. <laughs> uh, I would probably have her make better movie choices and um, not even get to the Colin Joe's part of a fantasy, to be honest. Anyway, uh, <laughs> when we're back, keep it.
and we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Solomon, mm-hmm. you're our guest, so you can go first. Okay, I get to go first. Well, Let I'm going to say <laughs> uh, keep it to people who answer their FaceTime calls in public settings. What are you doing? Mm. I don't know you. I've never met you. And now I'm in a video conference call with your uncle. Like, I don't <laughs> <laughs> Like it's it's for me, FaceTiming should be like I need to know when we're gonna do it, how we're gonna do it, and why we're doing it. Because I will never answer a call randomly and I just I don't wanna be I also don't like it from the other side of things. Like I don't wanna be in a public setting all of a sudden when you FaceTime me as well. Like let's let's bring it to private spaces. Keep FaceTime within your studio apartment and not at the nearest bodega where you're trying to figure out which prescription pills you're getting. I just can't do it anymore. It's a, it's like the worst <laughs> version of when you walk past like tourists taking a picture somewhere and you're almost in the picture. Like somehow it's like unbelievably embarrassing to be seen in that context ever. And now you're also hearing them scream because people always over talk into a phone. Yeah, that really does suck. It's happening more and more often. And I feel like, especially like, don't do, also stop recording other people unless they're a cop. Mm. <laughs> like, I feel like that's another thing that keeps happening too with phones. I'm like, let's stop this thing where we have to capture and annoy other human beings with our phones. You know, I want to say that, like, the pandemic is partly responsible because I will admit, you know, to um, being a perpetrator of this crime. <laughs> Not in public, but, you know, the random call for a friend would become a random FaceTime during the pan- early days of the pandemic when I knew that we were all mm-hmm. at home doing absolutely nothing. That was at least, you know, it, fe- it felt like you were connecting with people. Yes. You know, so I will, I will admit to that. But I don't do it anymore. It's, it was very handy. Yeah. I got a random like FaceTime from a friend recently, just like in the middle of the day, and I declined it. And then I sent them a text, I am at work. <laughs> Why are you FaceTiming me at two in the afternoon? What's wrong with you? It's just a chaos agent situation. Also, don't like FaceTiming with a group of people. Now you're, de- you're being a terrorist. You're just, yeah, yeah, I got 10 people at me now. <laughs> I'm so afraid. I-, I think I would support FaceTiming more if there was a rule that the call could only last 20 seconds. Like, because then you, like, there's an efficiency of information. I just want to see your face while I deliver this news, whatever. But I feel like it drags on and on. Anyway, FaceTiming in general. Well, what I want is a text message five minutes beforehand says, girl, go grab your, uh, your ring light and I'm going to call you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was a concealer. I have a moment to myself and then I'm fully prepared. Right. Would, would, people, would people do the FaceTime bomb? It's sort of like, you don't know where I am. I'm like, it's not just at work. Like, I could be in the bathroom. I could be about to shower. I could, I could be doing a variety of things, and you are just you're sort of invading where I am, yeah. you know? It's sort of like, God help us when people get, uh, you know, <laughs> the ability to teleport. Right. Or, you know, like sort of transfer like a VR-like version of yourself into a room to talk to somebody, like what always happened in like sci-fi shows of what they thought the future would be. Because imagine if you're just sitting here and your friend wants to talk to you and they just pop up. No. Hey, I'm swatting what are you it. doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm hitting the hologram. Yeah. I will throw you out the window. It is not going yeah. <laughs> uh, Lewis, what is your keep it? Um, it's a broad keep it this week. Uh, so it's the 10-year anniversary of Call Me Maybe, which I think we've now established through several listicles. is just one of the definitive uh, pop hooks, pop songs of the 21st century, maybe ever. Uh, Carly Rae Jepsen 
released a fun little statement talking about the first time she overheard people talking about her music. It was actually this song, Tug of War, that played mostly on Canadian radio that precedes Call Me Maybe. And she could hear people making fun of her voice. And she was their waitress at a restaurant, and they didn't know she was the waitress. Anyway, it's a cute statement. Read it. But thinking back on Call Me Maybe, I then foolishly went to go look up the chart positions of other Carly Rae Jepsen singles in America. And my keep it is to this fucking country. (laughs) Because I'm looking at these chart positions. First of all, she does have (laughs) one more top 10 hit. Do you know what it is? Run Away With Me? No, it's uh, Good Time with Owl City, a song that you never hear anymore. Man, everything else. This Kiss, a song I am obsessed with, went to number 80-something. All the singles from... Emotion, which I believe sold 40 copies, all to gay men in West Hollywood. I really like you. Only went to 39. Run away with me. Not on the chart at all. Your type. Not on the chart at all. Uh, later, when she did cut to the feeling, didn't chart. Guys, what is our problem? Do we Are we like anti-fun secretly? I feel like maybe the holdup is Carly Rae Jepsen is such a polite personality, as in mm-hmm. she makes Kylie Minogue seem like Courtney Love, that we like refuse to give in to her because she's so... Like cutesy, I guess is the word, but man, for me, the music is always there. Uh, Want You in My Room by Carly Rae Jepsen, fabulous. Uh, Tonight I'm Getting Over You, a, a wonderful single by her. Here's the thing her fans are obnoxious uh, <laughs> and don't channel their energy into helping her chart. They don't spend their money on her music. They need so. to read the BTS playbook where they're like, yeah. here's All right. how we're going to chart today. Okay. Barbs, as insane as they are. Uh, Rihanna Navy, you know, Beehive, other people help their artists chart. They will stream, they will listen. They'll put the song on repeat all day and leave right. it there and not listen to it. And Obnoxious Gay will just put the leaked version of it on and just listen to that all day. That doesn't help her. Mm-mm. I also wonder if maybe it's the reason Rachel McAdams is not an international A-lister because she's ultimately too Canadian to want it. Mm. <laughs> That's on my mind. Like, you know how Alanis Morissette had, like, among the biggest albums of all time, and she's like, I need to reseed really hard and make an Eastern-tinged album now. But there's something about Canada where, like, I can't command that much attention. And you know what? I respect it. Yeah. Very Michaela Cole. Yes. <laughs> I think mm. we're also learning culturally, like, oh, uh, I guess gay men, especially as we get older, like, oh, we don't, we don't have as much power in, in charting as we used to. Right. They have yeah. none. They have no buying power They're anymore. Like, Normani, one of the greatest songs, uh, Motivation was so good, but did it chart? I, no. Barely. <laughs> no. And then it always shocks you, the songs that do chart, and then you have to think, oh, if this song is like a gay anthem and it's like in the top 10, that means it's somehow also a straight anthem because straight people like it, and that's why it's charting. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but, but it does, like, blow my mind. Like, I guess Madonna was a big enough star, but, like, Vogue, a number one song. I mean, there is just nothing straight about that. People didn't know what voguing was then, though. Wait, wait what's your argument? Well, I mean, like, the white people buying that song globally, I mean, they probably thought she was talking about the magazine. Like, it was secretly gay. It was for yeah. sure. Mm. Vogue, Vogue was in the closet. The door was see-through, but for straight people, that's <laughs> <laughs> enough of, of a closet for them to be like, okay, we can enjoy this. Right. There was a barrier between them and what mm-hmm. was in the closet, yes. Anyway, we also know now that like, if you want to chart, you need to make a song that is two minutes and 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Also, with a dance move. That's why Vogue went off the charts. Like Any song right. that comes with a dance move, especially in yeah. the 90s, 
Hit. The original TikTok challenge was Vogue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it is a very, you know what? Ultimately, I mean, at least based on what you saw in the video, it was white accessible dance. Yeah. At least in the broad strokes. Like the real Voguers oh, yeah. behind her, that was the difficult stuff, but that was background. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But everyone, anyone of us could have done Madonna steps. That's the, that's the easy part. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, Carly Ray Jobson. Likewise. Yeah. We failed you. I didn't personally fail you. I stream that goddamn album every day. Yeah, I know. I bought them on iTunes. Yeah. I bought concert tickets, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen her twice. Mm -hmm. Yes. I've given Carly Rae Jepsen plenty of my money, so it is not my fault. I have not gone to concerts yet because I'm not, I don't want to be around those that many gays. Uh. <laughs> the white ones, I know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that probably runs pretty white. Oh, yeah. Does it, does it? <laughs> All right, my keep it. I got two keep us this week. The first quick one, it relates to music. Keep it to Ticketmaster oh. and the little pineapple under the sea that it is located in. I am tired of the terrorism. Mm. <laughs> I am tired of the charges that you have to pay on top of concert tickets. I am tired of... You know, having to queue in the fucking line to get tickets when um, concert tickets are going on sale. Dua Lipa tickets went on sale this week. I had to queue twice because uh, I did get tickets in two different cities um, because Megan The Stallion is not opening for Dua Lipa in Los Angeles. So <laughs> got to go somewhere else <laughs> to see to see Meg. And um, the queuing was a nightmare. And every time when I did get into to be able to buy tickets, I got kicked out. And then when you are getting up to the point where you select two tickets, all of a sudden it will say, oops, another fan beat you to these yeah. tickets. What? Then why the fuck am I queuing? <laughs> like, what is going on in your system, which once I get in and then I pick two tickets, it says, oops, you don't get to get those tickets because someone else got them. What the fuck are you doing? See, yeah, you made it further than me because I, I got like I got in the line thing and I immediately turned it off because I'm like, bitch, I'm not gonna wait in an imaginary line. What are we doing? Five thousand people <laughs> are in front of you. Nobody, what's going on? Yeah, that's some vaccine shit. Um, <laughs> why would they admit that somebody else got to the tickets? Couldn't they? I would throw up a fake 404 page. Like, up, oh, something went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, another fan beat you to these tickets. I think that's a lie. Ticketmaster, and now I just feel like all these are going to be online and resold by bots anyway. Yes. Can we go back to the era of lining up to get concert tickets? How about that? Oh, literally? We can just start making bots. I'll make us bots. I'll figure out how to get bots. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go back. I want to go to the future. I want to be a bot. <laughs> uh, honestly, I wish I had a bot to get those Charlie XEX tickets for her concert next week because I did not get any. <laughs> they sold out in 30 seconds and it's at the fucking Masonic Lodge in Los Angeles and that place holds like 60 people. Now wait, did I bring this up before? I was around about 18 San Francisco gays recently, all nice people. And these bitches all knew the words to Vroom Vroom, a song I was not even familiar with. Is this like a low-key phenomenon? Bitches fast, they can't catch me. Yeah. Vroom Vroom. How do you not know that? I don't know how beep, I had beep. never heard it. Oh, I know why. Yeah. I listened to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Lewis. I know, that was mean. Why would I say that? <laughs> I'm assuming like, like an antique radio, the knob doesn't even train anymore. It's been yeah. stuck in the same that station. Is, <laughs> yeah, I'm listening to like the Lone Ranger. Yeah. That is specifically Charlie XCX, like Hive, San Francisco. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 
You know my favorite thing about San Francisco? You cannot dress wrong there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a city of people who cut their own hair that shouldn't cut their own hair. I get it. <laughs> and then, of course, I... I don't even know why I'm bothering saying keep it to this woman. <laughs> Nicki Minaj. We talked about her last week when she was only lying about her cousin's <laughs> vaccination. Right. Uh, and having big balls. Uh, and talking about how she didn't want to go to the Met Gala. And then it became so much worse. It is a struggle to be a barb right now. I've always known that being a barb is a, like one step from insanity. Yeah. Um, but I haven't even changed my background yet on my phone. <laughs> it is Nicki Minaj. I'm so sad. I, I don't need another Kanye West situation in my life. I can't do this. I cannot continue to defend psychotic pop stars, singers, rappers, celebrities. Just let me stand you in peace. Why do you have to dox reporters? It is giving Kanye. Giving Kanye, doxing reporters, like agreeing with Tucker Carlson. Even Kanye didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, true. Somebody gave me sort of an early warning about Nikki. It's like if she wrote more than one diss about Little Kim, you should watch her in the future. So beware. Like I was, I, whenever I was like about to become full stand, I was like, oh yeah, like stupid hoes. Like okay, I gotta. <laughs> the second I heard that song and it became hit, I was like, ah. I'm going to be aware of you as a person. I'm going to enjoy you as an artist. You know what? I, I should have taken heat because Little Kim is my girl. And I, you know what? I'm going to have to take a step back for a <laughs> as a bar. I'm going to take a step back. I'm not even comfortable driving around L.A. listening to Nikki anymore. I feel dirty, okay? <laughs> I feel dirtier than when we were at Akbar the other night and Rock With You came on. Mm, oh, that's always <laughs> tough. Like, how, how do you react in a situation like that? Okay, I was like, oh, this is Michael's song and it's oh, so good. Right. Felt less gross. Felt less- <laughs> because, by the way, there's a Rock With You by Janet that's equally lovable. That's true. As, if you ask me, play that. Anyway, so maybe I'll be able to listen to Nikki's songs um, 15 years after her death. <laughs> Look, she's going to get the divorce that we all want her to get and, be, and come back to the normal city. <laughs> Will she? No. I hope so. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to point out, though, that the, the man that she married, his last name is Petty, and every time they, their reference in the news, it says, it's like, the Petties. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, there's never been a more appropriate name. <laughs> no, when she calls herself Mrs. Petty, I laugh every time. Unfortunately, it's great. <laughs> I always think that it's a joke. And she's saying, oh, I'm, I'm big petty today. But I'm like, oh, no, that's your last name. Right. So she has to live up to it. So I actually respect her. Anyway, I, I am taking a leave of absence as a barb. I guess I will go be a Rex R. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you have time for now? Okay. I do occasionally like BB. I do. BB needs me, okay? <laughs> she gave the gays everything that they want. On this one song. No, I have a feeling you have more time to be a Maxinista, which I'm I'm concerned you're not giving. I'm seeing Ava Max in concert this week. Okay, okay, see, I knew it. I knew it. I'm like a, I'm like a doctor. Yeah. At the Grammy Museum. How did she get in there? I was. <laughs> Someone must have gave her a code. Yeah. She has one album, right? How is yeah. She- yeah. It, it's probably a pop up concert. <laughs> Guys, I'm here. And I'm going to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Whips off her usher uniform and gets going. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you to Solomon for joining us today on the Thank show. You. Thank you to Haley Mills herself. Ah, uh, you know? goddess. And you know what, Haley? You outlived that damn cat. <laughs> <laughs> so you won. <laughs> Darn him indeed. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston, and our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is me, Ira Madison III. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. And hey, stay safe out there. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.